This week in KMA Land, Shenandoah School District and City explore school resource officer. Shen Council sets fire insurance charge. Page County budget numbers set. Montgomery County budget still in limbo. Council Bluff School Board debates Crescent Elementary closing. And more pipeline talk in Page County. I'm Mike Peterson. Recent events are prompting Shenandoah school officials to seek a law enforcement presence in the district's buildings. By unanimous vote late Monday afternoon, the Shenandoah School Board approved a resolution to enter into contract negotiations with the city for a school resource officer. Shenandoah Superintendent Dr. Kerry Nelson tells KMA News the district has discussed adding a resource officer off and on for the past few years. But Nelson says preliminary discussion recently took place with Shenandoah Police Chief Josh Gray. We would like to have a school resource officer and know that it's important and it can add a lot of value to our school system. I think we've had a couple of situations this year that have pushed us to the point where we need to make a decision. We do have some funds reserved. It may impact some of our general fund, but we are willing to move forward. Among other things, Nelson says an officer would provide a positive influence on students. A school resource officer can't fix all. They can't prevent all problems for occurring in a school system, but they most certainly can educate our students about what is appropriate, what's not appropriate. They can be a deterrent by their physical presence, and they can respond quickly when a difficult situation or a dangerous situation occurs. One such situation took place last week in which a firearm was confiscated from an elementary student. At least one concerned parent voiced concerns about the incident during Monday's board meeting. Jackie Cohen cited the ease at which the student was able to bring the weapon into the JK-8 building. She called on the district to implement tighter security measures, including installing metal detectors at building entrances. In the email, it said that they expect students and they encourage students to share information with the trusted adults regarding the weapons being brought into the school. However, I feel that too much responsibility is being placed on the students themselves, and there needs to be more preventative measures put in place by the school and faculty to protect the students and the faculty there. Nelson says the district is still reviewing the findings of a two-day security review conducted late last year as part of Governor Kim Reynolds' Safe School Initiative. The superintendent says improved security cameras and surveillance software are under consideration as a result of the study. There are really advanced softwares that exist today that didn't five and ten years ago that are noted that are possible to secure, but we have to really take a look at what they include, the legalities of using them, and the ability to actually purchase them for the district. As for the city's response, in an interview on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning, Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen was asked whether the city is willing to cooperate with the school district on the resource officer position. Oh, 100%. Uh, we have been, you know, looking into this for the past few years, trying to work out a solution. You know, we've actually already started putting some stuff together, and we were waiting to see what the school board vote was going to be. And since they are uh, unanimously in favor, then we'll sit down at the table now and start working out a uh, 2080 agreement 
uh, between the city and the school on this. McQueen says having an officer available in schools would not only benefit the district, but the police department as well. You know, having a, a resource officer out there is a presence. You know, I, I'm not going to say they're like every kid's friend, but they can also be that person that if a student needs to go up and confide in somebody, you know, I think they could do that. Our police department, in my opinion, has a really good public image. And so I think, you know, the younger ones and the students would do that. I know in some of the other districts that, that have a resource officer, that's what they're seeing. McQueen adds having a resource officer would eliminate some of the calls police receive regarding incidents in the schools. The mayor has no estimate on the city's expenses with the position. You know, there's going to be some startup costs, you know, getting somebody and uh, getting them equipped and so forth. You know, that's probably going to be the bulk of the city's on that. And then, you know, whatever we can work out with the school on uh, annual payments or whatever, you know, after that. McQueen hopes the city will finalize the 28E agreement for the city council's approval sooner rather than later. Shenandoah's fire department now has a way to recoup some of the expenses from large fires. By unanimous vote Tuesday evening, the Shenandoah City Council approved the first reading of an amendment to Chapter 35 of the City Ordinance regarding fire protection. Council members then unanimously weighed the second and third reading and officially adopted the amendment, which allows the fire department to collect insurance to defray some of the costs of battling fires. Speaking in favor of the amendment at a public hearing, local insurance agent Brian Steinkuller addressed the question of whether the department can accept donations rather than charge insurance. I called a few companies and they said, well, in the way that it reads in the policy, it actually has to be a charge. So this donation idea where they're just going to give a donation. Now, some have in the past, I think. But I think the way it reads to actually get that endorsement to kick in, it actually has to be a charge from the city or from the fire department. Fire Chief Justin Marshall reiterated that the department was not charging a fee for fire calls. The whole point of the ordinance and my thought were to offset expenses from a very large fire. Um, like I said, if we burn up an entire fuel budget for a, a big commercial fire, then we're you know we're back here amending the budget. And you know, fire service we we have to be here no matter what. And I'm just trying to kind of recoup some of the costs of the wear and tear and the astronomical amount of fuel right now, and just service calls on anything that could get damaged. As an example, Marshall broke down some of the costs incurred from battling the large commercial fire on Maple Street back in November. We charged six hundred forty-seven dollars for the engine that was there, and then. 2200 for the aerial because it pumped longest and burnt probably 250 gallons of fuel. So it, obviously it's the biggest piece of equipment that gets the biggest charge. In other business, the council held a public hearing on the city's budget proposal for fiscal 2024, then set another public hearing for its next regular meeting March 28th. City Administrator A.J. Lyman says the council must hold a second hearing because of recalculated budget numbers and the property tax rollback adjustment approved by the Iowa legislature last month. More on that in just a moment. Page County's budget numbers are set for the coming fiscal year, state property tax rollback notwithstanding. Meeting in regular session Tuesday morning, the Page County Board of Supervisors unanimously approved the county's fiscal 2024 budget beginning July 1st. The action followed a budget presentation from County Auditor Melissa Wellhausen and a public hearing. Wellhausen says the urban and rural levies are dropping one cent to $6.41 and $9.41 per $1,000 valuation, respectively. That and an overall increase in property valuations in the previous year come despite action by the state legislature adjusting the property tax rollback figures following an error in computations from the 2021 fiscal year. There was growth in rule of 28,748,000 
While the action is expected to save Iowa taxpayers $133 million, the legislation has left counties and cities throughout KMA land in the state with varying losses in revenue. Nonetheless, Wellhausen notes the budget does include a 7.5% increase in expenditures for public safety and legal services to just over $3.4 million. And that includes your sheriff, your attorney, courts, medical examiner, uh, some of those you have a little more fluctuation in, but like really like your medical examiner and some of those, some of your court costs are really, uh, you really just unfortunately kind of get handed those when the medical examiner asks for an autopsy. It's not <coughs> debatable of whether we can do those things or not. Additionally, the budget includes an 80% increase for county environment and education from roughly $815,000 in the current fiscal year to over $2.7 million in fiscal 24. However, Wellhausen says the growth is primarily due to the county utilizing its American Rescue Plan Act funds. That's also the service area where all of your ARPA funds are coming through. So the reason you're seeing uh, increase. Uh, 80% increase in there is because we're spending a lot of those funds kind of this year, which is also too why you're seeing that box from our revenue to expenses because um, we're spending out those ARPA funds that we've received this year. Meanwhile, Montgomery County officials are still assessing the impact of action at the State House. At its regular meeting Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors approved the maximum property tax dollars for fiscal year 2024. But the supervisors are still at least a week away from setting a public hearing on the county's entire budget for next fiscal year because of the Iowa legislature's approval of that bill adjusting the property tax rollback figures from the 2021 fiscal year. Supervisors Chair Mike Olson tells KMA News the county must address the loss of more than $178,000 in revenue resulting from the rollback readjustment. We're looking at a different insurance company right now, and there are other things that we can cut we don't want to cut, but we'll take one issue at a time and see how we come out. Olson has been critical of the legislature's decision regarding the rollback issue in previous meetings. Well, I understand what they did, and I think the whole board does. It's just we can't understand their timing of it and how it affected our, our budgetary process. And uh, even though they gave us a 30-day extension, it's still, uh, you know, it's an issue. And, and I, nobody is happy with it, but, but it's like a lot of things in life, you have to just accept it and go on down the road. So that's what we're doing. Olson won't speculate on the impact of the county's services. Counties, cities, and school districts have until April 30th to certify budgets for next fiscal year. Concerns over the proposed closing of Crescent Elementary School are aired during Tuesday night's Council Bluff School Board meeting. At its regular meeting, the board set a public hearing and possible vote for the school's closure on March 28th. Mark Schult, chief of elementary schools for Council Bluffs, says the current enrollment of the school sits at 64 students, which he adds has steadily declined over the past six years despite several efforts from the district to boost enrollment. One of those efforts, Schultz says, was an attempt to start a preschool in partnership with the Crescent Community School Alliance. We really wanted to um, put a preschool, a parent pay preschool at Crescent, and we agreed to do that. Uh, we created an MOU that was agreed upon by us and the group. And what we did to get preschool is we held preschool screenings on site. We did that for two consecutive years. We needed to have at least six students to have a viable 
preschool program there, and we were unable to have that enough enough interest to do that. Uh, currently, Schultz says less than 50% of students in the Crescent attendance area attend the K-5 school, with several open enrolling to other districts. He adds class sizes average around 11 students compared to the elementary target size of 23. After expressing disappointment in the efforts not resulting in enrollment growth, Superintendent Dr. Vicki Murillo says the district is starting to struggle to provide adequate specialty services at the school. The special classes, uh, counselors, um, the TAG services, all other schools may have those every day. They may get it one time a week. And that's it. Several parents and family members urged the board to keep the school open, such as Crescent resident Richard Batt. That was our whole point of moving to Crescent was the school, about its numbers and being generally better than the Council school system. One thing that people seem to take and not take into account when it comes to closing schools is the kids that are already in that school and having to move. And unfortunately, no two schools in a district are the same. Should the board vote to close the school, plans call for students at Crescent Elementary to attend either Lewis and Clark Elementary or College View Elementary. Calls continue in KMA land for local regulations on carbon pipeline projects. During Tuesday's Page County Board of Supervisors meeting, Imogene landowner Marty Maher once again aired grievances over carbon pipeline proposals across the state, particularly Summit Carbon Solutions Midwest Express CO2 pipeline planned for nearly 700 miles of western Iowa. Maher questioned why the board had yet to formally discuss a possible county ordinance regarding carbon pipelines given the timely nature of the subject. Additionally, he cautioned the board and advice from Summit to wait on the result of ongoing litigation with Shelby County, which was one of the first counties to implement an ordinance and subsequently sued by the pipeline company. Let's say the Shelby County ordinance is overruled. Well, then Summit has won the game. But let's say the Shelby County res uh, resolution is upheld. The pipeline company can then go through Shelby County more carefully, or they can go around Shelby County. And all the rest of you counties will be too late to get an ordinance put in place because that has to be done this year. Additionally, Mayher called the concerns of ordinances halting the project far-fetched, primarily due to the projected revenues from the pipeline companies through federal tax credits. Have you realize that Summit Carbon and Navigator, the two main companies that are putting in pipeline, they have they will reap a minimum of $24 billion in tax revenue over 10 years to get this pipeline built. Are you stopping them from building a pipeline by requiring a few safety setbacks for the health of the county residents? On top of airing continued safety concerns over the project and the lack of adequate setbacks, Mayher also takes issue with the idea that the pipeline is needed to protect the ethanol industry. Supervisors Chair Jacob Holmes assured Mayher the pipeline ordinance is one of several the county is reviewing over the next few months and they have already taken samples of a carbon pipeline ordinance. We've got a bunch of ordinances we're fixing to work on, and it's one of them over the next few months. I mean, that's what it is. We've got a bunch of them to work on. Solar, wind, I think all of them need address soon. We need to make sure we get them all done. Whatever we're going to do, we need to do it soon. So we're, we're going to work on it. We have to study it and figure out what the wisest way to do it, keep people safe. 
The Iowa Utilities Board has set a hearing on Summit's permit application for October. Legislation is also working through the Iowa legislature in both the House and Senate regarding eminent domain usage. And State Representative Tom Moore continues to hear from both sides of the spectrum regarding the contentious carbon pipeline issue. Moore expects lawmakers in the Iowa House to vote on a bill requiring property owners of 90 percent of the land in a carbon pipeline's path to agree to the pipeline before eminent domain could be used to access other properties. In an interview on KMA's Morning Line program Monday morning, the Griswold Republican indicated it's not an easy issue for lawmakers. Boy, it's a tough bill. And the reason it's hard is because, you know, we've got to protect the ethanol industry in Iowa, but we've also got to protect private property rights by individuals and eminent domain for private gain. Boy, that's a tough issue. So I think it's probably going to come to a vote. Moore, however, expects several amendments to be considered before lawmakers consider the bill in its final form. In the meantime, he continues to receive feedback from ethanol producers and other supporters of proposed pipeline projects. The uh, carbon sequestration stuff that has come from uh, the federal government enhances their pricing on ethanol, and that helps when it comes down to the local farmer getting a better grain prices and enhanced premium on, on their grain prices, if you will. And uh, so, yeah, I've heard from them. On the flip side, Moore says he's received feedback from landowners concerned about the safety of carbon pipelines, among other issues. Depending upon which of the uh, four different pipeline companies that are talked about out there, there's anywhere from, uh, I think, 55 or 6 up to uh, 70 percent of people that are already signed on, but yet... There are those who don't want the pipeline on their land. Similar legislation on eminent domain usage is in question in the Iowa Senate. Another piece of legislation is drawn the ire of State Auditor Rob Sand. Recently, the Iowa Senate approved along party lines a bill limiting the types of documents the auditor's office could access, including income tax returns, medical records, academic information, and other similar information that an individual would reasonably expect to be kept private. An amendment offered by the bill's floor manager, Polk County Republican Senator Mike Busalot, also would prevent the auditor from accessing criminal identification files from law enforcement agencies or law enforcement officers' investigative reports and communication records if that information is part of an ongoing investigation. In an interview with KMA News, Sand called the bill the biggest pro-corruption bill in Iowa history, claiming it takes away his office's ability to uncover waste, fraud, and abuse of taxpayer dollars. Auditors, by auditing rules, have to be able to look where they think they need to look to make sure everything is on the up and up. And what is relevant and what they need to look at is up to the auditor. They would take that power away from auditors and give it into the hands of the people being audited, allowing them effectively to bury waste, fraud, and abuse because they don't want it to see the light of day. They don't want to have to deal with the public blowback on it. Sand, who is the lone Democrat holding statewide office, was also recently the sole vote on a three-member board against approving a $4.17 million settlement reached in a University of Iowa racial discrimination lawsuit filed by 12 former University of Iowa football players who are black against UI Athletics and its coaches. Sand feels the bill, amended and approved one day after his vote, could be in retaliation for his decision to oppose the settlement unless Gary Barta, the university's athletic director, resigned or was fired. Thankfully, uh, public pressure uh, got the University of Iowa to undo that deal, but they want people uh, in positions like mine, positions of trust and power, to just go along with things 
and I won't when it's not right for taxpayers. The lawsuit was the fourth of its kind in BARDA's tenure with the university. Additionally, the bill would significantly reduce the access the auditor's office would have to the Iowa court system and instead push litigation between state agencies, offices, or departments to a three-member arbitration board. However, Sands said the provision removes his department's ability to remain independent. So if you take away our access to the courts and you put us into a stacked deck of a panel with one person from our office and then two people uh, from an entity that are uh, one or the other way, ultimately responsible for waste, fraud, and abuse, what's common sense tell us about how that's going to turn out? Taking away those checks and balances uh, is a terrible idea. They are as old as the American Republic itself. And we have used court access to be able to uh, get hidden documents that entities were trying to hide from us. The bill awaits action in the Iowa House. KMA Land County attorneys are raising some red flags over proposals included in Governor Kim Reynolds's expansive government reorganization proposal. Both the Iowa House and Senate approved a bill spanning more than 1,500 pages consolidating the state's current 37 executive cabinet agencies to 16. Included in the bill were provisions along with the Iowa Attorney General's office to intervene in any criminal proceeding on behalf of the state, regardless of whether the local county attorney asked for assistance. Fremont County Attorney Peter Johnson told KMA News he feels the proposal gives too much power to the Attorney General's office to alter criminal proceedings. Whether that may be something I decide not to prosecute, the Attorney General could could come in and say, nope, we want to prosecute, or vice versa. Um, you know, if I, I identify, you know, our, our good officers here in Fremont County identify a crime that's been committed, I want to go forward and, and bring charges. It appears that this statute enables the attorney general to step in and potentially dismiss those charges as well. The bill also gives the attorney general's office exclusive jurisdiction over election-related crimes. However, Johnson, who ran as a Democrat in November's general election, does appreciate current state law allowing the state office to assist with a county attorney's request, particularly in his situation in a rural county with somewhat limited resources. If I had a major event, a major crime that we were prosecuting that demanded a lot of resources, you know, that's an instance. And we have several times in the past um, relied on the attorney general to to um, prosecute some of our higher profile or more complicated crimes where the the ability to prosecute exceeds our capacity at the office. While the Attorney General's office is assured they will respect the discretion of county attorneys, Johnson questions how long that pledge would last and fears this could be the first step in politicizing the office and straining the relationship between county attorneys and the Attorney General. Will the, the party, the political party of the county attorney or the political party of the Attorney General start playing more of a role in how crimes are prosecuted in the state. And up till now, um, you know, county attorneys and AGs of both parties work together um, collaboratively, um, work together on, on different issues. In a statement to KMA News, Page County Attorney Carl Songson also raised concerns over the necessity of the Attorney General's office essentially expanding by way of the bill into taking cases without the request of the local county attorney. 
Atop of working with the Attorney General's office, Songson stated they have also worked with surrounding county attorneys on infrequent conflict cases. Red Oak school officials are mulling over the findings and priorities identified in a comprehensive facility study. That comes after the Red Oak School Board received final recommendations from Derek O'Neill with Ollie Pointer Macchietto Architecture for the district's long-range strategic facilities plan. The suggestions come after the firm conducted a nearly seven-month-long comprehensive facilities assessment. O'Neill says one of the top priorities identified was an Inman Elementary School. Primarily, O'Neill urged the board to look into replacing the roof on the portion of the facility built in the 1960s within the next year and possibly this summer. That has a budget median in your col- in your middle column there of $275,000. That needs to be a high priority item over the next over the next year. Just that six classroom section. Okay. The rest of the building, so for the roofing piece, we did bring down a roofing consultant out of Omaha. They went through all the roofs. You have, with proper maintenance, you've got another 10 years of life on the 1999 roofs of that building. O'Neill says the assessment also identified a need to replace Inman's fire alarm system, costing between $245,000 and $290,000. And that wraps up another edition of This Week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.